Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussion on how theology intersects with our daily lives. I'm your host for today, Father Wesley Walker, and I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Hans Borsma, the St. Benedict Servants of Christ Professor in Ascetical Theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary, and author of many important books, including Scripture as Real Presence, Sacramental Exegesis in the Early Church, Heavenly Participation, The Weaving of a Sacramental Tapestry, and Seeing God, The Beatific Vision in Christian Tradition. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Borsma. How are you doing? I'm quite well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Yeah, happy to happy to do it. Uh, so I wanted to start out by uh, talking about your book that's been most prevalent to a topic that we've been discussing on the show lately, which has been um, how to read scripture like a pre-modern person would. Um, so in your book, Scripture is Real Presence, uh, you make the argument that the early church fathers saw the Bible as a kind of sacrament. So what does it, what does it mean to see scripture that way? Um, yeah. The most important part of that is to say that um, the Old Testament, as Origen would put it, is, the, is a mysterium, um, in that translation of his works, is a mysterium or a sacramentum. And a mystery or a sacrament, the way that uh, Origen and others in the early church understood that, is um, something, an, an event, a historical event, that contains a deeper presence, a greater reality, greater than itself. And the way in which the Jewish fathers understood that is that that greater reality is Jesus Christ himself. So the outer event uh, makes a deeper reality, namely Jesus Christ, present. So just as with, or not just as, but in in a similar fashion to the way in which um, in the Eucharist, um, the host makes Christ really present. So also the scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, make Christ really present according to the Church Fathers. And and by and large, I'm convinced, that's the way in which they read uh, the Old Testament um, across the board. Like, it's not just one or two Church Fathers, but across the board, I think you see that pattern. Mm. So would you say that's radically different from how the average Christian in the pews would see Scripture today? Or do you think that they functionally value the same things about Scripture, just using different language? Yeah. Um, I like to think that the way people go to the Scriptures is to get to know the Lord in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so people in the pew often um, are in some sense better exegetes than sometimes than, than people who have studied exegesis. And I think the reason for that is uh, they go to church in order to encounter Jesus. Um, they read the Bible for themselves um, in their, in their devotion, in devotional life. Um, in order to encounter Jesus Christ. Um, now, a problem that modernity brings brings to us, and a problem that affects every one of us, including uh, people in the pew, is um, that we're often struggling with how to find Jesus, how to find this real presence of Jesus in the Scriptures. And what I'm trying to do in this book, Scripture's Real Presence, is to help people read the Bible in such a way that, yes, we can actually find Jesus in the Bible if we read the Scriptures sacramentally. And I think the problem that we're often struggling with in modernity is that we have flattened out the world. So any sort of sacramental depth has been removed. We, we, we tend to think that if only we map the DNA, if only we, we um, 
uh, analyze the text carefully enough that then we, we get to the real meaning. Um, but the real meaning, of course, is the sacramental depth, is Jesus Christ himself. And um, the book basically tries to help people to, to, um, to look at Scripture and to read Scripture that way. Hmm. I think we might be able to... Um guess the answer to this next question then based on the answer to that question. But uh, the sacramental view of the scriptures in the church fathers opened up what we now would identify as the four senses model of scriptural interpretation. And for those of you who may be unfamiliar with this, the four senses are the literal, the allegorical, the tropological, and the anagogical. Uh, while the last two are important, I want to primarily focus on the first two, the literal and the allegorical. What exactly is the relationship between the literal and allegorical senses? Because I know a lot of people, when they hear allegory, think it's the opposite of literal, that it's totally unconnected. Um, so yes. how do we how do we go about dispelling that notion? Right. Um, many people, in fact, to underscore what you're what you're mentioning in your question, many people, in fact, define the term allegory in such a way as as implying arbitrariness. So we define the term allegory as arbitrary imposition of an alien meaning on the text. Now, to be sure, we can, one can allegorize in such a fashion. It's possible to impose a completely alien meaning onto the text by way of allegorical exegesis. That's entirely possible, and sometimes that's been done. Um, but by and large, that's not what the Church Fathers do. When they move from the literal to the allegorical, the reason they do so is not because they see in Philo or somewhere else um, a, a kind of allegorical exegesis and they try to simply imitate that. The reason why they find um, allegorical exegesis helpful and the reason why in some ways they also find Philo and other Platonic exegetes helpful is that it's possible to use the quote-unquote technique, I would almost say, of, of allegorizing um, in a Christological fashion. So for them, for the Church Fathers, the point is always to look for the deeper Christological meaning. Any allegorizing that's not Christological um, is condemned by that very fact. Mm -hmm. So for the Church Fathers, the reason why we cannot simply um, let the literal sense of the Scripture stand and leave it at that is that it would raise the question, well, where is Jesus Christ in all of this? And for the Church Fathers, it was crucial that the scriptures of the Old Testament uh, could be shown to be the scriptures of the Church. That is to say, the scriptures that show us Jesus Christ. Hmm. And to do that, it was important, therefore, to, to allegorize in a Christological fashion. I, I do have one question about the literal level. In this modern context, when we hear the word literal we tend to think historical. Um, so I'm thinking the Canaanite uh, conquest narratives in the Old Testament, which have been in the um, news a little bit lately, um, given some public discussion around that issue. Um, the church fathers who, who, like you said, would say you have to know the literal and then the literal kind of builds into the allegorical. Some of them, uh, Gregory, Origen, um, etc., would say that the conquest narratives were sort of unbecoming of God. Um, to read them literally in a historical sense. Um, so I guess that that's an area where it gets tricky for me, and I'm wondering if the yeah. word literal might get freighted with modern understandings of what literal means that might be yes. different from the Church Fathers' understanding of literal. Yes. Um, 
first, let me underscore what you're saying in terms of the difficulty that the Church Fathers have with this kind of uh, historical reading of, of the um, Old Testament text. So when it comes to, say, passages that seem to incite to genocide, uh, the book of Joshua, for example, um, for Origen, uh, it's absolutely imperative that we read that allegorically, um, that we read that spiritually so that these battles refer to spiritual battles that, that we have in our own lives. Uh, that's basically the essential move that he makes all the time throughout his, throughout his homilies on Joshua. Um, and um, it's also true, uh, uh, theologians such as RPC Hansen and others have accused uh, Origen of basically dehistoricizing the text and of saying you know, origin doesn't do justice, doesn't do sufficient justice to the historical meaning of the text. Um, despite de Lubac's defense, Henri de Lubac's defense of, of origin, I do think that these critics have somewhat of a point. Um, I think that or, uh, the, the kind of theologians that you mentioned, origin, Gregor Nyssa and, and others, that they at times um, use allegory in order to get away from the historical um, event as described in the in the in the biblical text in the in the literal meaning of the text. And to my mind, that is a problem. I think it sometimes I think these authors sometimes too easily. I think uh, try to get away from the difficulty that a literal reading of the text. Uh, carries and then the difficulty, of course, is how can how can a just God incite incite to violence in this way? Um, I think allegorizing helps. It's part of an, uh, it's part of a response. I wouldn't even call it an answer. I don't think there is a, a puzzle, a, a sort of puzzle that you fit and then you have a clear answer. But I think it's it's part of a response that you need. Uh, the Christian reads the text in the most ultimate sense, in an allegorical or in a Christological fashion and not in a literal fashion. That said, there are historical events described there, and um, the biblical author, um, in some sense, connects God to these events. And I don't think we should give answers that are too too facile, and, and, and I worry sometimes with, you know, despite all the great respect and love that I have for, for Origen and for Gregory, I worry sometimes that they're, that they're too quick in that regard. Now, as to the meaning of the, of the little text, which underlay your question there, um, our understanding of, of um, literal exegesis is quite different, I think. It tends to be quite different from that of the Church Fathers. In general, that's the case with these quote-unquote genocidal texts. But that's that's the case, I think, across the board. Um, when we think literal exegesis, we think an uh, exegesis that is not constrained by anything but but natural cause and effect. Um, for Origen and for the Church Fathers, and also for the later medieval theologians, there's no such thing as a purely natural mode of exegesis. All exegesis begins with assumptions, faith assumptions, which includes divine providence, which includes um, Jesus Christ as the center of history, who therefore can reach back and does reach back to encapsulate the entire Old Testament text, the Old Testament scripture. Um, 
to give you but one example, when 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 uh, Greg of Nyssa, in in the life of Moses, uh, divides that book into two parts: history and contemplation. Uh, his history section isn't what you what you and I today in modernity would expect with a history section. It is filled with 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 evidence of of Saint Gregory's faith commitments. Um, he talks freely about what God is doing here or there. Uh, talks freely about miracles that are happening, etc., etc. So it, uh, the literal meaning is not for the Church Fathers a purely natural understanding of of historical cause and effect. That's a really helpful distinction and leads into the next question uh, that I had. Because one thing I really appreciated learning from E.B. Pusey and from you in your class on Lectio Divina at Neshota House and in your books um, is the sacramental reality that's present within typology. Uh, that is, if I understand it correctly, that Old Testament types don't just point forward to something in the future through a system that we might think of as type and anti-type, but rather that the type participates in the reality of the anti or of the archetype. Uh, could you elaborate a little on the difference between those two approaches, the type anti-type and the type archetype? What exactly yeah. is the difference between the two? Right, right. Um, first, let me, let me clarify that I'm not objecting, per se, to the language of type and anti-type. I think it's fine to use that sort of language. Um, but sometimes that language of type and anti-type, and also the term topology in general, is used to describe a historical mode of exegesis of two events that are separated um, by millennia at times, by hundreds or thousands of years, where the type is something that happens at one point in history and the antitype is something that happens way, way later in history. And so topology is in, on, in the, on that understanding is regarded as a form of exegesis that is, that is historical where an earlier event points forward to a later event, where a type points forward to an antitype. And the next step then is to say, well, that's quite different from allegorizing, which, of course, is arbitrary. Right. And um, Pusey wanted to say, no, um, you misunderstand topology when you say that. At least you misunderstand how topology functioned for the Church Fathers. Mm -hmm. Because for the Church Fathers, type and anti-type were not simply separated um, by a long period of time with the type pointing forward to the anti-type. For the Church Fathers, the later event, what we often call the anti-type, say Christ, who is the anti-type of many Old Testament events, for, for Pusey, the anti-type, the later event, uh, was the original one. And that's why he called it the archetype. Arche meaning source, archetype. So Christ is always already God's eternal plan. God always had in mind the incarnation. And because the incarnation lies at the center of history, it is the model, as it were. It is the paradigm on which the earlier events are modeled so that the earlier event can sacramentally participate in the archetype. So the archetype is the original, although chronologically it's later. Mm -hmm. It is in the mind of God first. It's the source of the Old Testament types. So E.B. Pusey, for that reason, much preferred the type. Sorry, much preferred the term archetype over the term antitype because the term archetype shows that that the two co-inhere, that type and, and, and archetype co-inhere, that they're not simply separate, um, separate from each other chronologically.
that's a that's a helpful distinction, I think. And um, one I, I thought of today while I was doing some reading in Revelation when it talked about the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Right. The, the source, like everything comes from that. So obviously in all our talk about allegory and sacramental typology, you don't dismiss the need for historical readings of Scripture. We've already established that fact. Um, but how do you respond to those who would argue that an allegorical and sacramental, sacramental reading somehow takes away the unique witness of the Old Testament? Yeah, that's, I, I get that question or slash objection a fair bit. Um, and... Um, uh, and my, my immediate inclination is to respond by asking, what do you mean when you say the unique character of the Old Testament? For the Church Fathers, for Pusey, and also for me, the unique character of the Old Testament, what makes it unique is precisely that it points to and makes present our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what makes the Scriptures unique. Um, so, but, but strict historical exegetes, people who want to understand the Old Testament, um, who want to understand Old Testament exegesis as a strictly historical endeavor, um, will raise the objection, well, what about the unique character of, of, of the um, Old Testament in order to, to protect it mm -hmm. from the Christological, uh, from a Christological reading, it first needs to be understood in its own historical context, etc., etc., etc. And once we have understood the Old Testament text, um, either in a grammatical historical fashion or in a historical critical fashion in its own context, then we can perhaps later uh, think of Christology and we can perhaps later think of tropological implications or application and, and so on. And while I'm in no way, and I genuinely mean that, in no way objecting to um, to a grammatical, historical, um, contextual reading of the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's a reading, or it should be a reading, if done well, it should be a reading that's already colored and shaped by the archetype, namely Jesus Christ. So, um, what makes me most nervous about the objection, what about the unique character of the Old Testament? What makes me nervous about it is that it typically betrays um, an understanding of the Old Testament as pura historia, as pure history, patterned on, 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 on a purely natural understanding of reality. Uh, you know, the, the notion of pura natura, pure nature, comes, it comes into its own in the 17th, 18th centuries. And, and uh, a strictly historical exegesis um, is patterned on that purely natural understanding of reality. And the objection, therefore, typically, I think, betrays uh, a separation between nature and the supernatural that I think uh, we should not countenance. It almost seems like a kind of um, biblio-Nestorianism. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it is. And um, it, there is an and, and there is there is of course underlying much of this debate about allegorizing um, a, a question of how does this relate to the Antioch Alexandria distinction, mm. the, the Nestorius versus Eutyches um, debate, and um, I, I would characterize modern modes of strictly historical exegesis. 
as a as a victory of a radical sort of Antiochian uh, exegesis. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is it is an historianism, I think. Yeah. As a follow up to that uh, discussion in in biblical studies, you know, it's really common when you pick up. Uh, literature uh, written by biblical scholars for biblical scholars that the Old Testament is often referred to as the Hebrew Bible. Yes. Um, do you think that designation is reflective of our failure to understand the sacramental inheritance of Old and New Testament then? Yes, I certainly do. I, 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 I hate the expression Hebrew Bible. Um, and and what, it can, what, is, what an expression like that does, I suppose, is, or what it's meant to do, I suppose, is to um, show some difference to our Jewish friends, um, seeing that it's uh, written in Hebrew, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And uh, what it also does is it safeguards uh, the, the historical character, as it were, by giving it the term Hebrew. We're making clear that we're not reading New Testament realities or, or Greek realities, for that matter, into, into the Old Testament. Um, um, yeah, where to begin with that? Um, the, the, the most basic thing, I think, to say in response is um, the Bible, including the Old Testament, is the Church's Bible. Mm -hmm. And we should not use terms such as Hebrew Bible in my mind, but we should not use any sort of terms that obscures the ecclesial character of the Scriptures. Um, the Scriptures from beginning to end witness to Jesus Christ. Uh, moreover, for much of the history of the church, although certainly the the, the um, Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, has has a certain priority at times for the Jewish fathers, the situation, in the sense that they refer to it often, and we're aware that it uh, that that there was such a thing as a Hebrew text underlying the the, the, the scriptures, underlying their own text, but but. Already in the New Testament and continuing in the in the in the Greek and Latin fathers, um, it is the Septuagint that is used as the scriptures of the Bible, um, and so for the Church fathers, in many ways, in, in in a very real sense, I think you could say the Bible was not the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, the scriptures were not the Hebrew Bible. It was a Greek Bible, mm. um, and um, to. To use a um, to use the, the term Hebrew Bible, I think I think um, ignores or, or obviates that sense of of um, the ecclesiality of the of the scripture. So one of the major issues it seems to me is that ever since the Enlightenment, um, there's been a growing divide and sometimes really an outright war uh, between dogmatic theology and biblical studies. And so I know you have a book coming out on this topic sometime in the foreseeable future, but um, what do you think it looks like for those two fields to begin working together again um, in order to bring back some of the exegesis that we're talking about? Um, at a real, at, a, at the most basic level, perhaps, um, I don't really believe in the distinction between biblical and dogmatic theology. I think all theology should be biblical. I think all theology should be dogmatic. And um, it's fair enough to say that there's a wide variety of, of emphases of individual theologians, but a, a, a division of the two disciplines um, uh, assumes that we can do biblical studies 
um, separate from theological convictions. And to my mind, uh, that shouldn't be so, nor, for that matter, uh, should we dare to engage in dogmatic theology without recognizing the normativity of the scriptures in doing so. Mm. So, <laughs> scripture and doctrine um, go hand in hand. Um, they co in here, they can't be separate from one another. So, the fact that, that um, uh, we have developed a discipline of biblical theology, um, to my mind, is a problematic development. And it has to do with the way in which the academy has has developed since seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, um, and it's important, I think, encountering that that we recognize that the place, the locus for theology, is the church. Um, it is the church that's been given by our Lord the Scriptures, and it is in the church that we read the Scriptures, and so. Um, when, when, you, when you take that as your starting point, um, you recognize that, that biblical theology, between quotation marks, the biblical theology cannot be a strictly historical endeavor, as if it were historic um, discipline. It's not, a, it's not a discipline in the strict sense of the term. So when St. When, when Thomas Aquinas used the term scientia for, for theology, um, he's not thinking of science the way we think of, 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 of modern sciences, of, of especially the exact sciences, but not of any science for that matter. When, when he thinks of, of scientia, he's, he's thinking the term knowledge. And he's talking about God's own self-knowledge, mm. his knowledge of himself, his knowledge of the world. And it's knowledge that we share in. That's a deeply spiritual matter. And so um, the, 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 the most important thing, I think, for the church to do is um, to get away from, um, from uh, preaching and, 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 and teaching that is merely emotional and to take the the theological task that's been entrusted to her seriously. Um, and I think there are, there are signs that the church is taking back that task. Um, and I, I think one of the most obvious reasons for that is that the academy um, has, by and large, also in the realm of religious studies and theology, lost its way. Mm. So the church um, uh, is forced, in some sense, to take back its role in, in, in doing theology. And um, if we take that task seriously, we should, we should do it in such a way that, that all theology is biblical and that all theology is dogmatic in character. Mm. That's that's helpful, and I, and it kind of leads into the next question because in your brilliant article in First Things uh, called "Fear of the Word," which we'll link to in the show notes, so that if you haven't read it, you you need to go read it because um, it's excellent, Doctor Borsma's article. Um, but you discuss how the hermeneutics of the grammatical historical method take interpretive authority away from the church and places it in the academy, which makes sense because according to the grammatical historical method, I mean, all you really need is you know inductively we're going to figure out uh, what the larger culture was doing with these words and ideas and so then we can kind of place it um, and get the right meaning from it uh -huh. that way and 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 so where else would you do that rather than 
the church and the academy. Um, so it, I, I think you're spot on in that diagnosis of, of that, how the hermeneutic takes, usurps authority away from the church. Um, so I guess I have sort of a twofold question along the same lines of what you were just talking about, um, because this is an important topic and one that I've wrestled with. I've followed the um, pastor theologian movement a little bit um, because I think that they're at least recognizing the problem and trying to rectify it. So first, what does it look like for the church to regain that interpretive authority? And second, um, how do the church and the academy orient themselves towards the other in a way that promotes their mutual flourishing rather than uh, especially the academy trying to usurp interpretive authority? All right. Um, that's a, that's, both questions are difficult. Yeah. Um, um, the first question is about what it looks like, you said, right? Yeah, what does it look like for the church to regain its interpretive yeah. authority? Um, there's a couple of things in the book that you mentioned that I'm working on right now. Um, I'm dealing with, with five things, and I'm, I'm basically saying um, that the first thing we need to, to, uh, we, we need to establish is that all exegesis is Christological in character. And we've talked about that and taking that from the Church Fathers, from medieval theologians, all exegesis Christological in the sacramental sense of that term. Um, secondly, I think um, because of the modern separation between reason and faith and the modern separation between nature and the supernatural, uh, it's important that we, that we uh, regain a sense of the importance of metaphysics. And on my understanding, that implies some form of Christian Platonism. Um, we can't avoid those questions, despite all the protests that make that will and already have come to the fore on that on that score. Um, but we need to recognize that we all do metaphysics, that we all have metaphysical assumptions, and the question is, what's a good one, <laughs> and what's one that doesn't contradict the scriptures themselves? Um, and then. Um, a, a, a third point um, that I, I would highlight is um, that we, we, we need to become more robust, perhaps, as a church in, our, our, in daring to speak about divine providence mm. and not being afraid um, to, to, to speak of the hand of God in history, as, as some of the early theologians would have put it. Um, because it's divine providence that allows us to detect topology. It's divine providence that allows us to, or the recognition of the divine providence that allows us to see um, Christ as the archetype as Busey had it. So we need divine providence, and we need to to um, to, to become bold again um, in, in in reasserting that. And, and and a final thing that I would emphasize is. Um, and that's perhaps a, a, a aesthetically speaking, a, a difficult point, in as much as we're very, very much at home, I think, as contemporary Christians in our world. But we need otherworldliness. We need heavenly heavenliness. We need contemplation. Um, and and it is that that otherworldliness, that sense of contemplation, that needs to drive. Um, our exegesis, and that needs to drive our theology. If the end of humanity is to see God, if that's our purpose, um, then it needs to drive our exegesis, and it needs to drive all of our theology. Um, 
And so, so those are some of the emphases that I think we, we, we should recapture in, in, in doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and with regard to the second part of your question about how um, church and academy should, should relate to one another, um, I think because the situation is complex today, um, there are places in the academy that function, still function actually fairly well, mm-hmm. or, or really well at times. For the most part, that's not the case, but there are places where, where it does. Um, and um, so, so my, my counsel would be treat these things on an ad hoc basis. Um, don't, don't take a purist approach that says, well, uh, to hell with the academy. Let's just, let's just do all theologizing in the church. No. Um, yes, theology has its proper place in the church. I'm convinced of that, absolutely convinced of that. Um, but um, because we've had a history since the 13th century where theology had a place in the academy, um, we, we, um, we, we should recognize the fruit of those developments, where they still are present, and we should make use of those fruits, rather than simply say, well, uh, forget about that, we don't need it. Um, so uh, I would advocate an ad hoc approach with a recognition that really theology belongs to the church. Hmm. Um, and, and wherever you have a, a change from theology to religious studies in the academy, you kind of know that you've lost an ally. Yes. So let's be aware of that. Yes, absolutely. So I always like to um, kind of end discussions, especially with um, scholars and theologians, uh, looking for some pragmatic takeaways, because a lot of our listeners are um, priests or ministers, and um, I know probably out of all of them, I need the most help. So um, for those of us who would like to kind of keep breaking out of the historical grammatical methods mold, um, what are some helpful resources that you would point us to? What can we be reading or watching or um, doing in order to kind of work on that? I always resist practical questions. <laughs> so, so I want to begin with, with resisting the question and, 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 and by saying um, there is no right method for exegesis. Andrew Lowes, in his beautiful book, Discerning the Mystery, come, uh, you know, really objects to, to, to um, the use of a method in exegesis. Mm. Um, and I think he's right in that. Um, so if we're looking for resources... In order, in order to sort of uh, find a particular method or a particular resource that, that will give us the how-to answer to our questions. Um, there's no such thing. Um, and in our very search, perhaps, for practical aids, um, we, may, we may inadvertently lapse back into a modern approach to exegesis that says, if only I have the right resources, I can find the one right meaning of the text. Mm. Well, the church fathers were never interested in the one right meaning of the text. They know that that meaning occurs in in the spirit-filled reading of the of, of, of the divine scriptures. Um, so it's in the encounter, the spirit-guided encounter, um, that this happens. Um, that said, and that's the first and important thing to say, I think. But that said. Um, there are resources um, such as the um, ancient commentary on the scriptures, uh, IVP um, commentary on the scriptures. Beautiful, beautiful resources. Um, it's short, short segments from the church fathers, 
in their exegesis on, of the biblical text. Um, they're short, and because they're short excerpts, you need to you need to treat them with some care. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a great resource. Um, also, Robert Wilkins' um, uh, The Church's Bible, uh, which now has a number of, of um, volumes, uh, is a great is a great resource. I think uh, which with much longer excerpts um, in in, in uh, of the Church Fathers. And, and for that reason, in some ways, perhaps more helpful. Um, the, the, the most important thing, perhaps, that I would say is, um, well, we sh- while we should not simply imitate the church fathers, we want to, we want to, in our own time, um, cultivate a sacramental mindset ourselves. So we need, we need a spirit-filled exegesis and that is grounded in a walk with God that is grounded in an ecclesial personhood um, that that I would almost say naturally but I mean supernaturally um, looks um, for Christ in the text and finds him there uh, certainly um, you read on a, on a regular basis I would say to priests read on a regular basis homilies of the Church Fathers, of St. Augustine, of Gregor Nyssa, of Origen. Um, they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. And, and as you get into it and, 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 and familiarize yourself with what it is that they're doing, um, you'll less and less find the need uh, for a particular passage to turn, say, to Origen or to turn to Augustine to see what it is that, that they did. Um, You'll get a sense of the kind of kind of reading of scripture that that's going on there, and um, you, you begin to do this on your own. And the, the final thing that I want to say about this question is, uh, regardless of all my lovely church fathers, don't see this as a way of avoiding hard work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, read the text, uh, read the Hebrew text, read the Greek text. Um, it'll, it'll give you beautiful insights just reading in the languages. Um, read contemporary exegetes. Um, they have often wonderful insights. Um, so don't avoid those kinds of things. Do word studies. Uh, many of the Church Fathers' commentaries and homilies um, betray an incredible familiarity with the Scriptures, one that, that we often don't have. And for that reason, we need our concordances. Uh, and uh, the, the doing word studies, for example, is, a, is, a, is a, an amazing way of familiarizing yourself with the scriptures and also of seeing connections between the various passages across the two testaments um, that give insight in the scriptures. So do hard work. Uh, many of the kind of things that grammatical historical exegetes advocate you do are actually quite helpful. Hmm. That's great. Well... You heard it here first. You still have to do the hard work. <laughs> so we've alluded a little bit to your book uh, that will be coming out, the uh, the five things that uh, every theologian wishes biblical scholars knew. Um, when will that come out officially? Is there a release date? It's not clear. I, I ha- actually have a manuscript finished, um, but, but uh, um, the publisher is still uh, waiting uh, to see what's happening with the complement- complementary volume written by a biblical scholar. 
So yeah. we're kind of waiting on the situation on that end. But yeah, I'm pretty much finished with the book. Gotcha. Do you have anything else in the pipeline that you're working on that you can tell us about? Yeah, um, I've taught a course a number of times now on Lecture Divina. Um, and I would like to do a shorter book on Lecture Divina. And, um, and also have in mind a larger, more a multi-volume kind of thing on uh, participation. Um, so I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with that yet. But I want to um, I want to spend some more time on the theology of participation. Oh, great! Well, we'll all be keeping our eyes out for that, I'm sure. All right, now comes the point in the show when we have guests where we ask ten a modified ten questions from inside the actor's studio. So, are you are you ready? I, I'm as ready as I'll get. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, what is your favorite word? Jesus. Hmm. That's a that's a pretty good one. Uh, what's your least favorite word? Just. Ooh, interesting. What you turns? You want me to clarify that or not? I'd like to hear the clarification on that one. Yes. All right. So just means it is only such and such. So it reduces the world around us to nothing but X, to just that. Okay. Um, and similarly, the biblical text, if it is just historical, you know, don't bother. Gotcha. I when I heard you say just for, I thought you meant like um fair. Oh, I see. No, so that's no, why no, I was that's astonished. That's a great word. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Um, what turns me on, I guess, is is a, a longing to understand, mm. a lack of understanding, and in, in, in the very lack, uh, a desire to, 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 to know and to love. Mm. What turns you off creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Arrogance, pride. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What's your favorite work of fiction that's not J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis? Um, probably The Brothers Karamazov. Mm-hmm. What uh, What sound or noise do you love? Um, I love um, the sound of birds, singing birds, especially if, if, I'm, if it's quiet in a, in a field somewhere or in the woods. Uh, it's nothing like hearing the birds sing. Mm. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, screeching of chalk on a chalkboard. It is the worst. <laughs> I know you've had a couple professions. You were a teacher at one point, um, mm-hmm. and then you were a pastor, and then now scholar. So besides the three professions that you have done, what's one that you would like to attempt? Okay, so this is the one question I can't possibly answer because there's nothing I don't think I, I want to do differently. I mean, I, I can let me say I would love to be a good musician hmm. so that's one thing i would like but i'd like to aspire to knowing that i don't have the gifts for it however right what uh what profession would you most not like to do um assembly line work any kind of assembly line work yes i feel you on that if uh if heaven exists and we're pretty sure here at the sacramentalist that it does uh what would you like to hear god say when you arrive at the pearly gates um, I forgive you for all that you've done wrong. Mm. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, to close each show, uh, we like to uh, talk about one thing that we're into. Uh, we pick something. It could be an experience, a book, a movie, or TV show, or whatever. There really aren't any parameters, um, and we just talk briefly about it. So, uh, Dr. Borsman, what have you been into lately? Um, well, um, perhaps the one thing to mention is I've watched a movie. Uh, it's an older movie. Uh, I think it's actually from the 70s, A Bridge Too Far. Um, 
at the time it was a famous movie and many people may still remember it um it's um it basically depicts uh, a major battle in, uh, I think it was November 1944, of the Allied forces trying to catch Arnheim in, in the Netherlands with Operation Market Garden. And um, uh, I was just in Holland last week and uh, was in Arnheim. Uh, my brother-in-law, who's, uh, who's in the military, said, oh, well, we have to watch this movie together. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gruesome movie in many ways. Mm. Um, but historically, also quite uh, quite accurate, from what I understand, at least, and um, it it gives you it gave me at least uh, a real sense of how even any any just war is a terribly tragic war, mm. and and the events uh, in in 1944, which prolonged the um, the war by uh, by an extra winter, um, was terribly tragic. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating movie. Um, the thing that I've been into lately has been a book uh, that I just got, uh, Participating in Christ, Explorations in Paul's Theology and Spirituality by Michael J. Gorman. Uh, I just found out recently that Dr. Gorman is actually my neighbor. Uh, he lives like five minutes from me. Uh, and teaches at St. Mary's in Baltimore. Um, but really great book. And uh, what, the thing that I really enjoy about Dr. Gorman's work is uh, he really places Philippians 2 at the center of Paul's theology. So Paul's God is a cruciform God who reveals himself as such, which actually reminds me a lot of Origen, um, seeing kind of a cruciform nature to the scriptures. Uh, and so I, uh, I, I really appreciate Dr. Gorman's work. I've gotten to meet him now, got him to sign my book, which was great. Um, so yeah, I, I'm excited to finish it and, uh, and get a little deeper into All it because right. it's, it's excellent stuff. Yeah, thank you for that. I love Michael Gorman's work. I, I read his book, Cruciformity, a number of years ago now. It's a great, great book. Yeah. And I love his emphasis. Yeah, yeah it's he's, good. He's a, and just in person, he is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, so, sure. yeah. so, yeah, check out uh, Participating in Christ uh, by Michael Gorman. Uh, so please go also, while you're uh, buying books, uh, make sure that you uh, buy many of Dr. Borsma's excellent books. Keep an eye out for all of his new works. And I, I always like to plug uh, Neshota House, too, when possible. So if you're looking to continue your theological education, especially if you're in the Anglican tradition, uh, I personally have found it incredibly worthwhile uh, at Neshota. And there's a lot of great things happening, and they bring in tons of great uh, scholars, including uh, Dr. Borsma, who will be doing a class based on the book that you're uh, writing, right, um, in January. So uh, it's not too late, I don't believe, to sign up for that. So I would encourage you to do so. And if you like what we're doing here at The Sacramentalists, uh, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and share us with your friends. And if you want to continue the conversation uh, with us and get to know other listeners, you can join our group on Facebook through our Facebook page. And you can email us with feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalists at gmail.com. The peace of God which passeth all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.